discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Howdy, folks. Boy, I sure wish reporting on the news could be more fun. Indeed, all of the black pills that we swallow on a regular basis as news junkies sure does make one long for more innocent times like those of a childhood car ride playing the license plate game or I Spy. I know, why don't we try that? I spy with my eye something that starts with the letter P. Wait a minute, actually, I spy with my eye two things that start with the letter P. And, what's this? They're both spying back at me? You're listening to Alternate Current Radio, I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Record. Counterpunch reports, they keep insisting they don't do it. But companies such as the Israeli NSO group are global vendors for regimes, whatever stripe or color, for surveillance tools to spy on those they deem of interest. The 2013 revelations by Edward Snowden that exposed the warrantless world of mass surveillance by entities such as the U.S. National Security Agency and Britain's GCH caused a global rush towards encryption. Governments, left groping in the dark, sought out private providers of surveillance devices in an unregulated market. Not only could they get effective spyware, they could do so at very affordable prices. The NSO group was one such provider. It sees its mission as a noble thing, marketing itself as a creator of, quote, technology that helps government agencies prevent and investigate terrorism and crime to save thousands of lives around the globe. End quote. The company also emphasizes their mission to target those quote-unquote terrorists and criminals who have gone dark. Quote, the world's most dangerous offenders communicate using technology designed to shield their communications, while government intelligence and law enforcement agencies struggle to collect evidence and intelligence on their activities. End quote. The group insists that it's quote, products help government intelligence and law enforcement agencies use technology to meet the challenges of encryption to prevent and investigate terror and crime, end quote. Forbidden Stories, a network of journalists with a mission, quote, to protect, pursue, and publish the work of other journalists facing threats, prison, or murder, sees things differently. One of the topics that figures prominently in the ranks is the Pegasus Project, a collective journalist 
nationalism effort of global proportion coordinated by Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International's Security Lab. Its primary purpose? To expose the depredations of the Pegasus spyware, the golden child of the NSO group. Pegasus is a rather vicious thing, enabling those deploying it to access a phone's contents and remotely access its microphone and camera functions, churning it into a surveillance device. It was given a gloss of notoriety in 2018, when it was revealed that Saudi dissident Omar Abdulaziz had been one of its victims. Abdulaziz claimed that communications with journalist Jamal Khashoggi, butchered by a Saudi squad of assassins in Istanbul, in October 2018, were intercepted by the Saudi authorities because of the spyware. His lawyers argued that the hacking, quote, contributed in a significant manner to the decision to murder Mr. Khashoggi. On July 18th, Phineas Ruckert of Forbidden Stories revealed that some 180 journalists had been selected as targets by some 10 NSO customers across 20 countries. He begins with the Azerbaijani investigative journalist Kadaji Ismailova, whose phone was regularly infected with Pegasus for almost three years. Ismailova was baffled on realizing how the security of her phone had been compromised. Quote, I feel guilty for the messages I've sent. I feel guilty for the sources who sent me information, thinking that some encrypted messaging ways are secure and they didn't know that my phone is infected. End quote. Details are then supplied. Both Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International were given access to a leak of more than 50,000 records of phone numbers selected by NSO clients for surveillance reasons. The clients are a varied bunch, from those of the autocratic flavor, Bahrain, Morocco, and Saudi Arabia, to the more democratic ones, such as India and Mexico. The NSO group, in a letter to Forbidden Stories, claimed it could not, quote, confirm or deny the identity of our government customers for contractual and national security considerations, end quote. Ruckert admits that identifying instances where the specific phone number was compromised would be difficult short of actually analyzing the device. But with the assistance of Amnesty International's security lab, quote, forensics analysis on the phones of more than a dozen of these journalists, and 67 phones in total, revealed successful infections through a security flaw in iPhones as recently as this month. End quote. The Pegasus Project is significant for revealing the sheer scale of espionage. The Guardian, a participating media outlet, promises to reveal more details about targets that, quote, include lawyers, human rights defenders, religious figures, academics, business people, diplomats, senior government officials, and heads of state, end quote. At this writing, a rather juicy detail has come to light, the potential targeting of French President Emmanuel Macron by Morocco using Pegasus. The NSO response to the Forbidden Stories report was snootily dismissive. The account was, quote, full of wrong assumptions and uncorroborated theories that raise serious doubts about the reliability and interests of the sources, end quote. The company ducks the issue 
by suggesting that the information gathered on the individuals in question could have been obtained via other services. Quote, the claims that the data was leaked from our servers is a complete lie and ridiculous since such data never existed on our servers. End quote. As for the murder of Khashoggi, old defenses are resurrected. Quote, we can confirm that our technology was not used to listen, monitor, track, or collect information regarding him or his family members mentioned in the inquiry. We previously investigated this claim, which again is being made without validation. End quote. For an outfit such as the NSO group, such rebuttals have proven to be meaningless. Twin lawsuits against NSO, filed in Israel and Cyprus by a Qatari citizen and by Mexican journalists in 2018, revealed extensive evidence of the company's complicity in illegal surveillance. NSO also failed to get the lawsuit by Abdulaziz dismissed, and was ordered to pay his legal costs, with the judge Guy Hyman calling the case, quote, broad, especially in matters of the roots of constitutional values and fundamental rights, end quote. In 2019, WhatsApp brought an action against the company, claiming that Pegasus had been used to target 1,400 user accounts. For WhatsApp's chief, Will Cathcart, the Pegasus Project reporting revealed, quote, what we and others have been saying for years, NSO's dangerous spyware is used to commit horrible human rights abuses all around the world and must be stopped. End quote. The Pegasus Project has shed more light on the government revolt against encryption, one facilitated by private enterprise. Left unregulated, the NSO group and its competitors can operate with vigilant disdain and amoral proficiency. David Kay, former UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression, has wisely called for a moratorium on the sale of such spyware describing an industry, quote, out of control, unaccountable, and unconstrained in providing governments with relatively low-cost access to the sort of spying tools that only the most advanced state intelligence services were previously able to use, end quote. Control, accountability, and constraint have never quite featured in the NSO Group Operations Manual. Counterpunch.org Wow, this Pegasus thing is some pretty scary stuff, huh? I mean, could you imagine what the power of Pegasus could do if it was combined with the power of, say, Palantir? If you've been listening to my show for a while, you know that I've covered stories involving Palantir numerous times across the last year or so of doing the Daily Ruckus. And as evil of a company as I personally think Palantir is, there was one story in particular that I reported on last year about the time that Palantir was going public that actually inspired me, admittedly, to purchase a small amount of Palantir's stock. Nothing to write home about. And unfortunately, owning even a small portion in that company made me feel incredibly guilty. So I sold it not very long thereafter. And it was nice timing, too. Apparently, not long after I sold my stock, Palantir began to take a nasty plunge. But I'm starting to hear rumors 
and see some signs that Palantir might be a good purchase again as an investor. I'm not necessarily interested in doing so again myself. However, for a small handful of you particularly prudent people out there, with a pinch of pocket money to burn, perhaps placing some into Palantir may be a palpable proposition for you. But don't take my word on it. John Rhodes, writing for Seeking Alpha, says there's a surprise opportunity for Palantir evolving right now in the space industry, both commercial and government. It's quite interesting and far more involved than most investors might realize. Furthermore, it's much larger than it seems on the surface. All in all, this is a very exciting opportunity for Palantir. It's important to consider that as far back as 11 years ago, Palantir was able to perform exceptional feats. For example, a 2010 demo showed how Palantir government could be used to chart the flow of weapons throughout the Middle East by importing disparate data sources like equipment lot numbers, manufacturer data, and the locations of Hezbollah training camps. Palantir's chief appeal is that it's not designed to do any single thing in particular, but is flexible and powerful enough to accommodate the requirements of any organization that needs to process large amounts of both personal and abstract data. Indeed, there have been plenty of demonstrations of Palantir's incredible technology, in particular across all three of their core products, Gotham, Foundry, and Apollo. Now, here's what recently caught my attention. Back in April 2020, Palantir scored its first contract with Space Force. The tip of the spear is foundry, as explained by FedScoop. Quote, Palantir will prototype a data backbone for building a common operating picture of space, according to the company. The Space Force will use the company's foundry suite to better understand what is orbiting the Earth, be it satellites, space debris, or incoming hostile projectiles. End quote. This modernization program, known as Kabayashi Maru, is a hat tip to Star Trek, i.e. specifically how Captain Kirk beat a no-win scenario. And it makes sense for Palantir, because as General John Hyten explained, in the past it would take 10 years to build or buy code. Palantir completely changes the dynamic. What took years now often takes months, or even just weeks. While this was all good news, the contract was for one year and $10 million. That's fine, but it's not great. It certainly signaled a foot in the door, but not much else, and with limited upside given the duration. More recently, however, Palantir announced a new partnership worth $33 million. Here are the two relevant updates. Quote, Palantir will deploy and maintain Palantir as a data-as-a-service, D-A-A-S, platform to support SMC ECX's space command and control program element, including operational users at both the National Space Defense Center and the Combined Space Operations Center. End quote. And, quote, additionally, Palantir will support NORAD NORTHCOM's Joint All-Domain Command and Control, JADC2, transformation, ingesting and modeling high-scale data to support comprehensive and collaborative operational planning and execution. End quote. It's that second piece that gets me excited. Let me explain exactly why. Quote, Joint All-Domain Command and Control, JADC2, is the the Department of Defense's concept 
to connect sensors from all of the military services, Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, and Space Force, into a single network, end quote. In turn, that specifically entails data collection and the processing of data using artificial intelligence. This isn't a PowerPoint exercise. Instead, success is directly tied to success in deploying sensors, collecting real-time data, analyzing that data, and then visually representing the results to warfighters for the sake of decision-making in theater. In a moment, I'll clarify even more. I want to stress that Palantir's sweet spot is not found in deploying sensors or collecting data. However, there's tremendous capability available for analyzing data and providing actionable visualizations. In other words, Palantir is positioned in the middle of the Internet of Things for the U.S. government, specifically for the military. So far, the story is simple. Palantir secured a $10 million Space Force contract. Then, they secured a contract worth $33 million per the press releases and various news. I just want to pause here to reflect on the size and scope of the opportunity. Quoting from Space Force's website, quote, The Air and Space Forces released their combined budget proposal on May 28th as part of the Biden administration's overall spending request for the 2022 fiscal year. The Department of the Air Force's request calls for $173.7 billion, a 3% increase over the current budget. The Air Force's budget of $156.3 billion represents a 2.3% increase, and the Space Force's budget of $17.4 billion is a 13.1% increase from fiscal year 2021, end quote. Right now, Space Force is about 2.5% of the overall Department of Defense budget, given the 13.1% increase from fiscal year 2021. I'm expecting plenty more growth in the coming years, as Space Force is new and small. The key here is growth, growth, and more growth. Stick with me as I explain this next piece of the puzzle. On February 17th, Osprey Technology Acquisition entered into an agreement to merge with Black Sky Holdings. Quote, Black Sky's analytics platform, Spectra AI, combines millions of data elements daily from our Earth Observation Constellation, Partner Satellites, IoT, Hyperlocal Platforms, and third-party sources. End quote. In short, they provide geo spatial imaging and analytics using small sets. They are a bit different than their competitors because they have more frequent data updates. Using artificial intelligence, they can process data very quickly, and they can quickly come online and retarget rapidly. They have an advantage being quite nimble in space. As another quick aside, there's one Wall Street analyst currently covering Osprey technology acquisition. Here's that summary from June 18. Quote, Benchmark analyst Josh Sullivan initiated coverage of Osprey Technology Acquisition Corp with a buy rating and a $20 price target. The special purchase acquisition company is in the process of merging with Black Sky, a geospatial SAAS analytics platform that he views as a classic disruption story. Black Sky is disrupting its market with geospatial imagery analytics that's delivered in hours versus days at a tenth of the cost, said Sullivan, who sees Black Sky lowering the friction of space-based 
advanced imagery to a point where AI ML real-time analytics adoption reaches a tipping point, end quote. All of that said, I'm quite a bit more interested in how Palantir fits here. As I've previously mentioned in another article, Palantir is active in SPACs. I referenced six SPACs, although Osprey Technology Acquisition was not one of them. Of those six SPACs, none were related to space, at least not directly. But here's the twist. Quote, in October 2019, Osprey Tech One raised $316.25 million in its initial public offering and the decades-long relationships of our team with leading institutional public market investors helped to secure a further $180 million in PIPE financing with lead investors that included Tiger Global Management, Hedo Sophia, and Senator Investment Group, end quote. And then this, quote, Black Sky's venture capital sponsors are among the most established and forward-thinking investors in the space sector and include Mithril Capital, and RRE Ventures. We believe the board and management team of Black Sky chose Osprey Tech One as a merger partner because of the reputation and experience of our team, and because of our ability to assess the opportunity quickly, to work collaboratively toward an agreement, to commit capital to the transaction, and to assemble a world-class group of investors in the PIPE. We believe these strengths and capabilities will benefit benefit Osprey Tech 2. Now, just to be clear, a PIPE is a private investment in public equity. It's a way to get more money flowing into the SPAC before going fully public. And it just so happens that Peter Thiel, one of the founders of Palantir, has invested in Black Sky via this PIPE using funds pumped through from Mithril Capital. Although Palantir isn't directly investing in Black Sky, there's conceptual overlap. Plus, Peter Thiel is officially financially involved in both companies. Therefore, I strongly suspect we'll be hearing more about the two companies working together in the coming months and years. Yes, I'm speculating about any literal one-to-one -one business between the companies, but there's leadership and investment overlap without any doubt in my mind due to Peter Thiel. I'm not going to spend much time here talking about Palantir working with ICE, and I'm not going to be digging any more into this. But The Hill reports, quote, ICE in a statement said the 2017 program was aimed at targeting human smuggling facilitators, noting that it resulted in 35 criminal arrests and 38 prosecutions accepted on charges including alien smuggling and re-entry of removed aliens, end quote. Enough about those aliens in this article. Instead, I'm going to talk about UFOs, all based on a rather fun tongue-in-cheek presentation uploaded to SlideShare called Leveraging the Palantir Government Analysis Platform. I'll start off fun, but then get serious shortly after. Up until December 2009, the UK Ministry of Defense kept track of every UFO sighting as reported by members of the public. Using Palantir technology, visualizations were generated. Various data elements were explored, including fireworks, Chinese lantern festivals, Halloween, 
pub closing times, alcohol consumption, and moon phases. Furthermore, size, shape, and color of the UFOs were visualized. The topic is a bit silly, but there are several points that I want to make. The presentation was uploaded in 2012. It's nine years old. Palantir can use old data sets, huge data sets, and weird data sets. It's amazing for playing what-if games, perfect for analysts. Just imagine what's possible now. Consider how Palantir is able to absorb and process billions of data points in near real-time or actual real time. Furthermore, the presentation highlights the importance of data, but also human interaction. Put another way, Palantir is able to handle messy human data right along with structured data, whether on Earth or in space. On a very serious note, the warfighter in theater is subject to tremendous uncertainty. There's a true need for clarity about available resources, getting real-time updates, and literally seeing what's happening on the ground to the sky and into space. After all, UFO is an unidentified flying object. Nothing says it must be from another planet. It could very well be a hostile nation or some other bad actor. All of this in turn reminds me that Peter Thiel and Elon Musk were part of the PayPal Mafia, and now both are very much interested in space. In fact, 13 years ago, Thiel got directly involved with Musk's exploits. Specifically, Specifically, SpaceX got $20 million from Thiel's Founders Fund back in 2008. More recently, in 2020, SpaceX was looking for another $1 billion from investors, valuing the business at $44 billion. In the short run, the focus on SpaceX has mostly been on launches, but there's real gold in Starlink. That's the satellite broadband service buried inside SpaceX. Per Musk, an IPO of Starlink is expected in the future once cash flow from that activity is more predictable. In any event, all of this activity tells us that once again Peter Thiel is involved in space activities via the Founders Fund with Musk, and that, in turn, is likely to at least conceptually spill over into Palantir. While space travel is likely to be rather far outside of Palantir's circle of competence, it is far closer to Starlink, which provides provides a worldwide network of high-bandwidth satellites. That's a huge opportunity, especially as space becomes more militarized. Remember, Palantir is a friend of the U.S., but not countries like China or Russia. According to the company, quote, We generally do not enter into business with customers or governments whose positions or actions we consider inconsistent with our mission to support Western liberal democracy and its strategic allies, end quote. I believe that this commitment provides a moat for Palantir. Just consider how this fits with the theme of militarization of space and the new space race. Quote, Our leadership believes that working with the Chinese Communist Party is inconsistent with our culture and mission. We do not consider any sales opportunities with the Chinese Communist Party, do not host our platforms in China, and impose limitations on access to our platforms in China in 
order to protect our intellectual property, to promote respect for and defend privacy and civil liberties protections, and to promote data security. End quote. In any event, the real point right here is less that Palantir and SpaceX are working closely. Although that's entirely possible, there's not much evidence. However, the broad point is very strong. Specifically, Peter Thiel, one of the founders of Palantir, is very much involved in space activities via investments, but also partnerships and longer-term interactions with other leaders such as Elon Musk. Point blank, some of this activity is bound to rub off on Thiel and therefore on Palantir. That means more knowledge, more deals, more opportunities for Palantir over the coming years. Investing in space is a big deal. In fact, it's a really, really big deal to the tune of $4 trillion, according to Forbes. Perhaps equally important, it's estimated that more than 50% of the companies involved in the space race are American. Quote, The U.S. now has 5,582 space-focused companies, almost 10 times more than the next country, the U.K., which has 615, and there are more than 10,000 total globally. End quote. This is a tremendous growth opportunity. The focus on Space Force alone would be pure folly, which is a key point of this article. It's it's certainly significant, and it matters to Palantir, but there is much more money on the table. Quote, the U.S. government's space budget is almost $41 billion, $23.3 billion of which is focused on NASA. Reportedly, China has the next largest budget at just under $6 billion, followed by Russia, France, and Japan, with budgets in the $3 to $4 billion range. End quote. Furthermore, the $4 trillion is merely a starting point for the whole space pie, because the market is expected to expand in total value of the sector to $10 trillion by 2030, according to Space Tech Analytics and Forbes. Back of the napkin math tells me that's a 10 to 11% compound annual growth rate on a gargantuan number. Summing it all up, based on the growth of the Space Force military budget, general U.S. government budget growth for space, plus the growth of the space industry at large, I'm going to say that I'm bullish on the future of Palantir. The company, including Peter Thiel, is involved in the right stuff at the right time. In short, Palantir has a very strong secular tailwind available, and it appears they are properly exploiting it. Palantir is a buy. SeekingAlpha.com Knowing that Peter Thiel is invested in Elon Musk's ventures, I wonder if Elon Musk is invested in Peter Thiel's ventures. Specifically, as an investor, I wonder if Elon Musk owns any stock in Palantir. And if not, maybe he should. I mean, recently, he did take part in a special roundtable discussion about cryptocurrency with Jack Dorsey and Kathy Wood, during which he finally, officially admitted that he personally owns Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Dogecoin. However, if you've been paying attention to his tweets for the last few years, he believes, as well as many other people, that Dogecoin is going to the moon. But perhaps he should diversify a little bit and put some money into Palantir. Because the way the cryptocurrency markets are going, and the way the space race is going, it seems to me like Palantir is going to make it to the moon before Dogecoin. <laughs>
For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been the Daily Ruckus for Monday, July 26, 2021. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.